Hello and welcome to the EMJ podcast for March 2023. I'm Rick Boddy. And I'm Sarah Edwards. So today we've got another six papers that we're going to take you through, highlights of this issue. We're going to go through a range of different topics and we're going to start with traumatic brain injury. So I've taken a look at a really interesting study looking at S100B. This is a biomarker of traumatic brain injury. It's a calcium binding protein contained in glial cells. And after you've had an injury to your central nervous system, it can have a neuroprotective effect. But if you get too much of it around, it can cause inflammation and neuronal dysfunction after an injury. Now, it's been touted as a biomarker of traumatic brain injury for quite some time. It's not the sort of biomarker like cardiac troponin. So it's not only contained in neuronal tissue, it's also present in adipose tissue, cardiac muscle, skeletal muscle. So it's not likely to be a very specific marker of TBI, but it's hopefully going to be a very sensitive one. And the idea is that we could use this to decide which patients don't need a CT scan in the emergency department. So we've got a study in the Emergency Medicine Journal this month, which presents the diagnostic accuracy of S100B in a cohort of 275 patients from Australia. Uh, The authors included patients who had sustained a head injury. They all had GCS of 15 and they were all able to give informed consent. They all had indications for a CT head scan and they weren't excluded if they had other injuries. And that's important because S100B can rise after you've injured other areas of your body but they didn't exclude them from this study. So you kind of get a real world impression of how this biomarker may work. And what they were looking for was to detect whether the patients had a positive CT scan. So they had 35 patients in all who had a positive CT scan. And the bottom line is that they found that S100B had a sensitivity of 93.8% in patients who presented within six hours of injury. So that sounds pretty good. Not perfect. This 95% confidence intervals are quite wide. They go down to 69.8% because there's only small numbers of patients in that group. And the specificity is very low. It's 30.8%. So if you're Bayesian, you want to know what's the probability of my patient having a positive CT scan if they've got a negative S100B result. Well, we know that from the negative predictive value and the negative predictive value was 97.3%. So if you have a negative S100B, there's a 2.7% chance of a positive CT scan. You might say, that's all right. I'm willing to accept that. You might not. In uh, the patients who presented within 24 hours of injury, sensitivity was quite a bit lower. It was 82.9% with a negative predictive value of 94.3%. So the authors say, well, you could use this to reduce the use of a CT scan in 27% of patients. So we know that at the moment, 90% of the patients we scan have normal CT head scans. And the proposal is we could cut that down by just over a quarter if we use S100B. Question is, would a blood test fit into the care pathway? Would you be willing to wait for your blood test result before your patient goes to CT, especially given that the guidelines often say we need that CT within one hour? What do you think, Sarah? Oh, that is a very good question, Rick. And I'm not sure that at the moment and the way that the system is working, that I think that would be necessarily a great idea. However, if there was a point of care test for SB100, yeah, that'd be amazing, wouldn't it? You could just literally send them from triage. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I know there's a lot of interest in this. In fact, there's one commercially available panel of biomarkers for traumatic brain injury that's available at the point of care. The only disadvantage is that you need to centrifuge your sample before you run it. So it only works in plasma. You can't use the whole blood. And that's a bit of a faff in a busy emergency department when we've got patients on the corridor. So uh, my impression is, I think this has got potential but by itself, S100B is not going to get us there because there's not enough sensitivity and the point of care technology needs to get better so we can get quicker, faster results, easier for staff to use in the emergency department. That's my thought. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, that leads on nicely to the next paper um, on the theme of head injuries. So this paper that we've got in this month's um, Emergency Medicine Journal is looking at the pre-injury use of clopidogrel and whether it's got an increased risk of intracranial hemorrhage post-head injury in adult patients, a systematic review and meta-analysis. And this is by Moffat et al., now, it's a really interesting one that, you know, particularly the NICE head injury guidance that we use um, doesn't actually stipulate about the use of things like clopidogrel or aspirin. And, and as we know, a lot of our patients are on, on these drugs. So this systematic review really looked at, you know, what is there a risk? What is the risk? If there is, in fact, a risk of the use of just clopidogrel as a monotherapy, was it associated with a traumatic intracranial hemorrhage on CT of the head within 24 hours of presentation following a head trauma? So we, we've talked about systematic reviews in lots of other previous podcasts. And, you know, they did a standard systematic review, followed the PRISMA guidance, etc. And essentially, they found seven studies that were eligible for inclusion with a total of 21,898 participants. Whilst that is a big number, actually, when you delve within the paper, it is around 1,437 patients were only on clopidogrel out of that huge number versus the 20, just over 20,000 worth control patients who are not on antithrombolytics. So essentially, the, the outcome was, so for pooled odds risk, uh, sorry, odds ratio for risk of uh, traumatic intracranial hemorrhage for clopidogrel as a monotherapy versus no antithrombotic agents was 0.97, with a relatively wide confidence interval at 95% of between 0.54 to 1.75. Because the data was so varied and so there's quite a lot of bias within the data, what this ultimately means is that the papers within this systematic review, and which reflects the research that's out there, probably have a few limitations that we need to be careful of. But ultimately, what this paper suggests is that clopidogrel as a monotherapy, patients were not at statistically significant risk of traumatic intracranial hemorrhage after head injury compared to no antithrombotic controls. What do you feel about this, Rick? I think it's a hugely valuable study, actually. The authors have been very modest with their conclusions and acknowledging the limitations and the, the, the slightly lower quality of evidence that we've got to rely on to answer this question. However, this is the best evidence available from a systematic review, and the numbers aren't that small. The forest plots that they've presented really show no signal towards an increased risk of traumatic intracranial hemorrhage or the need for neurosurgical intervention in patients who are on clopidogrel. I think there's a real gap in the evidence in this area. NICE acknowledged it with the last head injury guideline. They made a research recommendation asking for more research uh, on this very question. 
Here we've got it from a systematic review and there's no signal towards increased risk of traumatic intracranial hemorrhage. So I find that very reassuring. And if anything, I mean, NICE at the moment doesn't say that just because you're on clopidogrel, you need a CT scan. They do say that for patients and anticoagulants. But I think I would take away from this a bit of reassurance. If my patient's okay, just because they're on clopidogrel doesn't mean I should necessarily change my plan. That's how I would uh, interpret the findings. Yeah, and I completely agree with you there. Um, I generally hadn't until recently it was brought to my attention about aspirin and clopidogrel about, you know, should we or should we not being CT? And I think this paper is really helpful in sort of suggesting that you probably don't need to CT people because they're unlikely, particularly if they're on clopidogrel, got um, traumatic intracranial hemorrhage. So I think you know, there is definitely working progress to be had, but this paper is really useful in, in, in practice, I think. Certainly is. So moving on, let's go to our third paper. I've taken a look at this one and it is going into the pre-hospital field. So we've got another study from Queensland, Australia this time, uh, which is looking at the prevalence of secondary insults and the outcomes of patients who uh, were intubated for a traumatic brain injury in the pre-hospital setting. So it's a retrospective study, including 277 patients who were intubated, having sustained a TBI in that uh, pre-hospital environment. And they had a look at the incidence of these secondary insults. So that's prolonged hypoxia, prolonged hypotension, uh, hyperventilation, as is measured by your entitled CO2 values. And they had a look at whether they correlate with the outcomes of patients. We all know that we want to uh, avoid those secondary insults in patients who've been intubated, particularly if they've had a traumatic brain injury. It's, you know, we want to ma maximize our cerebral perfusion pressure. So we all know that uh, if we let the patient become hypotensive, that's going to be compromised. And of course, hypoxia is always a bad idea for someone with a traumatic brain injury. So you'd expect to see a difference uh, in, in outcomes in patients who've had these secondary insults. But the authors here have now given us some evidence to support that. So of those 277 patients, we saw hypoxia in quite a number of patients, actually. 32.5% of the patients were, were hypoxic when the crew first arrived, and over a quarter of patients had prolonged hypoxia. It actually had a really important effect on the patient's outcomes. So if we look at mortality at 28 days, overall, 26% of the patients had died by that time. If the patients had a secondary insult, 35% of the patients died within 28 days. If there was no secondary insult, only 15% of the patients died. And that's a statistically significant association. So that's telling us, I mean, quite a big effect, really. Uh, more than double the number of patients dying if they had a secondary insult. They had a look at other secondary outcomes apart from mortality as well. So had a look at the duration of a patient's post-traumatic amnesia. And it was longer in the group with a secondary insult. 25 uh, days was the uh, median in, of duration of post-traumatic amnesia in the group with a secondary insult versus 19 days for the group that didn't have any secondary insult. That wasn't statistically significant. And similarly, they also looked at the Glasgow Outcome Scale Extended, the GOES, which tells us about the patient's neurological outcomes. And in that group, you can see if, if the patients had a secondary insult, well, 58% had a favourable Glasgow Outcome Scale Extended, whereas it's 73% for the patients who didn't have a secondary insult. So it's higher again, probably a bit underpowered, though, because we didn't reach statistical significance. So the key book 
take home messages from this are really the, the one, the prevalence of secondary insult was quite high. But number two, there seems to be a really marked association between secondary insults and mortality in particular in this patient group. So the take home for our clinical practice is what we knew already. We've got to minimize secondary insults. Hypoxia, hyperventilation, hypotension are really clinically important in patients with a traumatic brain injury who've been intubated. So watch out for them and correct them quickly. Try to avoid them because it's going to make a difference for the patient's outcomes. Quite stark numbers there, Rick, actually, with, with those outcomes. And perhaps, you know, our listeners and, and even myself hadn't quite um, appreciated quite how that affects outcome. And I think that's really significant from this paper, isn't it? Absolutely. And you might not necessarily recognise the significance of it when you're with your patient because you think, well, I'm going to correct this hypotension, give them a bit of presser, whatever, come back on the sedation and we'll be all right. But of course, this is telling us that this period while they're hypotensive, while they're hypoxic is ultimately really important for determining their final outcome because injury is happening during that period. Uh, So you've got to minimise that period, reduce the secondary insults. So next we're going on to a bit of paediatrics. So I'm going to talk about temperature threshold in the screening of bacterial infections in young infants with hypothermia, with the uh, lead author being Low et al. One of the things that we're always conscious of with paediatric patients and particularly young infants is temperature. So high temperature in those that are particularly less than three months, if not six months, you know, often will it warrant, you know, full septic screens plus or minus lumbar punctures, blood cultures, antibiotics and all within that sort of golden hour that we want to do. What isn't really appreciated is is the other end. So perhaps a, what we would term as a cold sepsis, the hypothermia presenting to the ED and the significance of is this significant at all? And what's the chance of serious bacterial infections? So um, what they did in this paper was a cross-sectional study of infants less than 90 days old presenting to four academic paediatric emergency departments in the United States over a period of four years between 2015 to 2019 with rectal temperatures less than 36.4. And their primary outcomes were, you know, serious bacterial infections defined as either a UTI, bacteremia and or bacterial meningitis and or invasive bacterial infections. And with that, they've then tried to work out, you know, is there a temperature, a low temperature that um, we need to be worried about? So within this study, they included 3,376 infants, of whom, just to put it into context, had uh, 62, so 1.8% of them had a serious bacterial infection, and 16 of them uh, had an uh, invasive bacterial infection. And among those infants who had the serious bacterial infection, um, the median temperatures that they had were 35.8. And the range of temperatures for the intercortical ranges were 35.8 to 36.3, which was significantly lower than the median temperature amongst those who didn't have serious bacterial infection, with that temperature being 36 degrees with an intercortical range of 36 to 36.4. And that had a significant um, p-value of less than 0.01. 
moving on then to when they did this looking at the um, area under the curve so the area under the rock curve um, they were trying to ascertain at what level the temperature could be significant with an area under the rock curve of being 61% of those with a serious bacterial infection with a cutoff of less than 36.2. What they struggled with, and the authors are very honest here, is that they couldn't find a significant area under the rock curve that gave a, a reliable sensitivity and specificity. The bottom line is that young infants who have serious bacterial infection and invasive bacterial infection who presented with lower temperatures, there was no particular temperature threshold as as opposed to, you know, a high temperature. And I think, you know, when we're trying to identify serious bacterial infection or invasive bacterial infection in little ones, particularly those that are less than three months old, the ones that are slightly cold, we probably need to be mindful of that they may have a serious bacterial infection but actually there is no cutoff as to how low it is and I think that's the thing that I've taken away from this paper and that I think you know that we should probably think about is cold you know so if they're less than 36 degrees and they're behaving slightly oddly we probably need to treat them almost as if or consider treating them as if you know their temperature was high. I don't know what your thoughts are Rick. So it shines a light on sort of cold sepsis in the you know younger age group, doesn't it? Um, we, we know about that in elderly patients, and here we've got this uh, focus on it in children. And uh, so I think it's really important. Uh, it's interesting to see that you, they couldn't get a cutoff, which might feel like it's a bit of a failure of low temperature as a diagnostic test to you know to, to actually work out. But most of the things that we use in practice to help us diagnose conditions don't have a single cutoff they're not dichotomous it's not black and white your patient has this diagnosis or doesn't uh, they all give us little pieces of diagnostic information and that's what this is telling us you know you, not everybody with sepsis now every infant with with invasive bacterial infection is going to have a really low temperature however if your infant has a hypothermia uh, and you're considering sepsis, then you know you've got to got to worry about this. It could be an invasive infection, and that's I think what it tells us. It shines a light on the problem, tells us that actually these infants are likely to be hypothermic. It's not black and white, but it's important information. And clearly, that there probably needs to be more research done in this area, looking at that to try and ascertain you know lower temperatures and if that's significant or not. Rick, I'm going to hand over to you to the other paediatric paper that we're going to talk about. Great. So I'm going to talk about uh, limping, limping children with, without trauma. And we're going back to Australia again, this time to Melbourne, uh, where we've got a retrospective study from three emergency departments, including children who were aged up to 16. Uh, they presented to the emergency department with a non-traumatic limp. And the authors wanted to have a look at what happened to those patients, basically. So who were they? What was the initial diagnosis? What was the final diagnosis at follow-up? And what tests were done? And how did that vary across the hospitals that they studied? So they included 475 children with limps over 12 months. The median age of those children was five years. Uh, just over 60% of them were uh, boys. And they had a look at what tests were done. So this is quite interesting because we kind of think that when children arrive in the emergency department with a limp that you know, we, we generally investigate them. 39% uh, of the children had blood tests. That's not a massive surprise to me. I was a little bit surprised 
that only 51% of the children had any imaging. Uh, 34% had no investigations. So that was interesting. Of those who had investigations, 46.9% had an x-ray, 15.6% had an ultrasound, and 7.4% had an MR scan. Now, I guess this reflects the heterogeneity of this population with limbs, because they're coming with all, all sorts of different problems. And uh, so that, that's reflected in the final diagnoses. So they had a look at final diagnoses. 36% of patients had follow-up data. So there's quite a bit of loss to follow-up. And you've got to bear that in mind, I think, because... I would suggest that it's more likely that patients with non-serious diagnoses would be lost to follow-up. If you've got a serious diagnosis, you're most likely to get follow-up. So we're going to probably see serious diagnoses overrepresented in these final figures. And of the patients that were followed up, 18% had a serious disorder. So what's the interesting stuff for us? Well, be nice to know what the most frequent diagnoses were. And there's no surprise about the top one. Top diagnosis transient synovitis in 37% of the children. Second most common, viral myositis, 16%. I was a little bit surprised to see 16% with viral myositis. My son had viral myositis over Christmas, which scared me for a bit because he had bilateral calf pain and he was was struggling to walk. And um, then I realized, oh, it's viral myositis, of course. Uh, And I felt quite reassured about it, but I hadn't realized it was quite so common as that. There were some serious diagnoses. The most common of those were osteomyelitis, in fact. There were seven patients with a slipped-up ephemeral epiphysis. I don't think any of them were diagnosed late. That's a a diagnosis that, in my experience, often is missed initially, but it doesn't look like that happened in this particular study. 84% of the children were discharged from the emergency department rather than being admitted. Uh, And interestingly, if you presented to the tertiary centre, you were less likely to have any investigations and more likely to be discharged. So you might think, wow, well, that's because they're just they're confident, they're, they're experienced at doing this, and they won't they won't investigate. But actually, I think there's a confounder there because at one of the three centers, which wasn't tertiary, there were more serious diagnoses. So I'm not surprised that they were investigating more because they had a higher prevalence. Lastly, let's have a little look at um, whether the initial diagnosis had to change at follow-up. So how many were misdiagnosed on their initial visit? Well, of 113 patients presenting to the tertiary centre, 10 of them had a change of diagnosis from a non-serious condition to a serious condition. Two of those were septic arthritis, seven osteomyelitis, so infection is a big theme there, and there was one malignancy as well. Uh, Now, we don't know if if those patients were sort of given provisional diagnoses and were still under investigation or if these were completely misdiagnoses. But it did give us a bit of an insight into the patterns of diagnoses that weren't recognised when patients first came in. So it's a bit of a tour of the epidemiology of the limping child in paediatric emergency departments. Absolutely. And um, as a PEM clinician, um, the limping child can be quite a challenging presentation and this paper highlights why, although you know transient synovitis and uh, viral myositis are often quite common, there are some significant diagnoses that you do not want to miss. Yeah, and this this really picked those up, hasn't it? That they do lurk in there, so we've got to be a little bit careful. Absolutely, and that's probably why it's an exam favourite across all the emergency medicine exams across the world, because it is a challenge. Lastly, we're going toxicological now and I've got a paper entitled snap timed study does the Scottish and Newcastle anti-emetic protocol i.e the snap 
protocol achieve timely intervention and management from the emergency department to discharge for paracetamol poisoning. So probably one of the most um, revolutionary things that happened in the management of paracetamol overdose was the SNAP protocol. And this study uh, by Christopher Humphreys et al. from Plymouth um, looks at, you know, the significance of since the SNAP program was created and lots of the UK are using this, you know, how has that impacted the emergency department? And just for our listeners out there who are not familiar with it, it's um, where you give the N-acetylcysteine to the NAC over 12 hours rather than the more traditional 21 hours. So they did a retrospective um, chart review um, from March 2019 to September 2020, so around 18 months. And they looked at all patients over 16 years or older who had a diagnosis or suspected or confirmed paracetamol overdose were included in the analysis. They had a total of 1,167 patients were, identif- were assessed for eligibility and 294 records were included in the final analysis. The bottom line was was that there was a significant reduction in the hospital length of stay with a median of 29.3 hours for the SNAP protocol versus 38.1 hours with a difference of minus 8.8 hours. What's really interesting is looking at the baseline characteristics. So those that had the SNAP uh, protocol often ha- um, in this in this particular cohort had higher levels of paracetamol dose ingestion. So 241 milligrams per kilo versus 223 milligrams per kilogram for um, the, the more standard sort of 21 hour protocol. And why that's potentially significant and what we have to bear in mind with, with the SNAP protocol is that we know generally potentially that um, higher levels of paracetamol are usually protective for some of the side effects that you get with NAC treatment. And the authors report this. Also, what they found with the SNAP protocol versus the the longer 21-hour protocol was that actually you were less likely to run into the anaphylactoid-type reactions, um, which are one of the things that um, can, and I remember, being a problem with the longer protocol. So 5.3%, uh, which of the 76 uh, patients in the SNAP protocol had anaphylactide reactions versus 15.4% in the 21-hour groups. Um, so the bottom line really is with this study is that I think that SNAP protocol has generally reduced the length of stay. And they looked at the whole length of stay, not just for the treatment, but including mental health review. And It has also decreased the overall anaphylactoid type reactions that you get that are often associated with the more longer paracetamol treatment overdose. So, you know, yay for SNAP is all I'm going to say. Um, What's your thoughts, Rick? I'm assuming you use SNAP where you're working as well. Yeah, and this uh, evidence, you know, supports that it, it does what it's supposed to do, doesn't it? Reducing length of stay. But the surprising finding was that that one about anaphylactoid reaction that you mentioned, number needed to treat of 10 to prevent one anaphylactoid reaction. So it sounds good. It doesn't look like any of the patients uh, had any serious outcomes with regard to, you know, um, fulminant hepatic failure, for example. It doesn't, it doesn't appear that they had any, any in either group, uh, which is good. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think it's shown that they, you can put a re, this reduced regime is is positive. It has lots of um, you know good positive outcomes, and I know a huge amount of work was done to try and get the SNAP protocol validated. The other thing that was really interesting as well, which I pointed out, was from time from ingestion. So until the the NAC was actually started. So in the SNAP protocol, it was started much quicker at eight hours versus the 21 hours. It was started at nine hours. I don't know why that necessarily was or is, but that also helps as well. Any other final thoughts there, Rick, before we wrap it up? Well, I think we've had six excellent papers again, haven't we? And there are some more gems in the uh, journal. If you go to go and have a check, check out on the website of the issue, or if it's come through your door, make sure you read it. But, you know, it's been a pleasure to cover these papers. I've, you know, learned a lot. There are some important points for clinical practice. So I uh, hope you've enjoyed us taking you through it. Absolutely. What a great roundup. And we look forward to catching you with April 2023. Yeah, we're in 2023's uh, journal next month. And it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Take care.